Yeah, good morning. Thanks for taking the time to honor me, Stevie. Uh, I do want to say this, man, to all the dads out there, past, present, or future, fathering is more about what you can call out of your kids than it is about what you can hammer into them. And that's a lesson for leadership as well. And so just reminded of that as Steve reminded of us of, a, of that time, you know, when they came to us, we saw something in them and spent the next season calling it out. But they've taken responsibility for the call of God in their life and been faithful. And so it really is mutual honor. So bless you. All right. Everybody good? It's not bad to encourage the preacher every now and then, right? So just let me hear you. Okay. Go with Go in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You guys have been doing a series, I guess, just closed the series through the book of Mark, Gospel of Mark, and uh, touching on things of the gospel. And I've got to say that when I called Steve and said, what have you guys been doing? And he said that. Uh, my spiritual lips started watering. I was like, man, that sounds really good and really something I can try and build off. And uh, so I want to do that this morning. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Man, we all need reminding. One of the tasks or one of the, the functions of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said he will remind you of everything I've taught you. And so Paul writes this to the, to the Corinthian church. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as a matter of first importance. That first is first in number and rank. So first, before anything else, first. I want to remind you of the gospel. First, the most important thing I can do is remind you of the gospel. You doing okay? Is this, am I loud? Okay. I'm just talking now. In a minute, I'm going to be preaching, so you need to watch the sound. Yeah. Okay, here we go. For I, I promised unto you the first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. And I'm going to leave it there, just those first Four verses. This morning, I really want to do that for you. Just remind you of some key elements of the gospel. I said somewhere recently that I've realized after almost 30 years of so-called full-time ministry that I really only have one message. I really only preach the gospel. And when I said that, people that have known me for a couple of years said, well, we've all known that about you for years. So I guess it was a recent revelation for me, but I've become known for this little saying, and I want to prove it to you this morning. The gospel gets gooder and gooder. <laughs> I'm going to prove that to you this morning. The gospel gets gooder and gooder. Now, that's what happens when you quit school when you're 14, so all of you that are still in school, you need to say no to drugs and stay in school. Otherwise, you're going to end up saying stuff like the gospel gets gooder and gooder, but it is true, and I'm going to prove it to you this morning is my whole point. It's often been said that the gospel is so shallow, a baby can play in it, but it's so deep, an elephant can drown in it. 
When I got saved 33 years ago, I had an encounter with God that changed me forever. God blessed me. I was unsaved. I wasn't trying to get saved. I was happy in my sin. I was enjoying my sin. I was making money off my sin. And in that place, God poured out His love and His mercy and His grace on me. Without me trying to find God, God came to me. Now that's biblical because Romans tells us that it's the goodness of God, the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. We don't get people saved by rubbing their nose in their sin. We get people saved by pointing them to the goodness and the grace of a gracious God. Are you doing okay? I knew the goodness of God. I was amazed by gospel grace. I knew that God had poured out his love and his mercy and his grace on me. I knew I was a sinner in that place. And I want to say this to you, friends. I know there was not a single redeemable quality about me before I met Christ. Not one. I wasn't kind. I wasn't gentle. I wasn't sober. I wasn't honest. There was not a single redeemable thing in me that the God of heaven could have looked down on and go, maybe. Nothing. And yet in that place, God pours out his love and his mercy and his grace. So I want to tell you this. If I stay there, if I stay in that place, then I am a gospel baby swimming in the blow-up pool of gospel grace. We have to go on from that. The gospel is not I got saved. The gospel is not Jesus saved me. The gospel is not the ABCs of our faith. The gospel is not even the A to Z of our faith. The gospel is the whole curriculum. Are you doing okay? Four key words we're going to use this morning that encapsulate the elements of the gospel. Four key words. I want, to re- I want you to remember them. Because when we preach the gospel, we've got to include these four elements. You ready? God, man, Jesus, response. It wasn't hard, was it? Let's go again. God, man, Jesus, response. You're doing all right. Those are the four elements of the gospel. And all four, when we share the gospel, or when, as we grow in our understanding of the gospel, all four of those elements have to be present. You're doing okay. The scripture starts with God, and so does the gospel. Genesis 1.1, I love that. In the beginning, God. No explanation, no justification, no nothing. Just in the beginning, God. And then we get to Genesis 2. It says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the wild animals. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female, he created them. So this is a rhetorical question because I don't know and I haven't asked. I just know it's many. How many times does God say throughout scripture, do not make anything in my image? Do not make anything in my likeness. And yet the scripture opens with God saying, let us make man in our image. That makes man utterly unique in all of creation. Utterly unique in all of creation. In the beginning, God tells us that God has intrinsic value. See, God's value is not derived 
or received. In the beginning God. That's why there's no explanation or no justification necessary. In the beginning God. Intrinsic value. But when God says, let us make man in our image, he is imputing value to man. The reason that man is valuable is because God values him. And then Genesis goes on to say this, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so God forms us in his image and breathes into us. The only part of creation that the Bible says God breathed on. Creatures breathe, but man is inbreathed with the breath of God. Utterly unique for a second time in all of creation. And then we get to Genesis 3. And God is walking in the garden and he says, Adam, where are you? So we created in the image of God. We are inbreathed with the breath of God, two times unique. And we are the only part of creation that has the ability to communicate with the creator. God creates man three times unique in the beginning of creation. You doing okay? In all of creation. It's often been said man is the pinnacle of God's creation. Now we can see why. Now we can see why. But here comes the bad news. Here comes the bad news. And let me tell you, for the good news to be good news, there has to be bad news, otherwise it's just so-so news. <laughs> otherwise it's just, meh, well, there was no bad news. But if there's bad news, then there's good news. And so we have to understand there's bad news so that we get to understand the good news. So we work in our little formula, right? God, God created man. We get into the second part of that thing, man. Man sins in the garden and is cast out of the presence of God. Reaches the low point in Genesis Chapter 6, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness was on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only for evil all the time. That didn't take long, right? A couple of chapters. Goes on to say this, the Lord was grieved that he had made man. So hasn't that a contrast from where we just were? This three times unique part of creation that is created in the image of God, that is inbreathed with the breath of God and has the ability to communicate with God. And a few chapters later, God says, I'm grieved. I'm sorry I did that. That's bad news. That's bad news. Romans puts it like this, all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall, not fallen. Fall, present tense. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, y'all getting quiet on me, but I'm not mad with anybody, right? I just look like this. This is <laughs> delight, delighted to be here this morning. This is my happy face. Y'all just need to relax. I'm not, I'm not, mad. I'm not mad with anybody, just... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so sin enters the world. The image and the glory of God in man is tarnished and twisted. But it's not destroyed. The Bible describes us in Ephesians chapter 2. says this, we were dead 
in our transgressions and sins. And we were, were by nature objects of wrath, by nature objects of the wrath of God. But you see, there's something in you that's going to lead us to the good news. Because it says this, we were dead in our transgressions. Dead people can't help dead people. Right? Dead people can't help. That's the, that's the lesson out of Ezekiel, dry bones. And the, there's, a, there's a little key word in that Ezekiel text. It says the bones were very dry. What does that mean? They'd been there a long time. What does that mean? Dry bones can't help dry bones. Dry bones can't help dry bones. There has to be this outside, this outside influence, this outside interference. And so God asked the prophet, well, can the bones live? I, and listen, that's a tr- trick question. Because if the prophet had said yes, God would have said, okay, well, make them live. And the prophet would have found out in a quick second he wasn't God. And the prophet said, no, they can't live. God would have made them live anyway. And the prophet still would have been wrong. It's a trick question. But the prophet gives the only right answer. Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Sovereign Lord, the only right answer. Sovereign Lord, you alone know. And again, God breathes on those bones and they come to life. See, dead people can't help dead people. We need this outside influence. We need something to come from the outside. People trying to help people is the Tower of Babel all over again. How naughty can I be this morning? Steve's not sure. He's not, Steve's, known, Steve's known me for 30 years. He's like, no, nah, that's a loaded question, bro. Sovereign Lord, you alone know. That's the right answer. That's the right answer. That's the only right answer right there. I, I, I just, I, I want us to realize something, friends, as a prophetic people, we've got to s- stop looking to man to help us. And we've got to go back to the scriptures. We've got to go back to the Bible. And we've got to go back to the gospel. Are you, are you doing okay? I want to tell you, friends, the gospel is the only hope for this nation. I love this nation. Lived here for 22 years. Sent one of my sons to the Marine Corps in this nation. I love this nation. I'm sold out for this nation. But only the gospel is the hope for this nation. Nothing else. We keep voting one party out and the next party in. And then we vote them out and the next one's in. And then every four years, we're surprised it didn't work. Because it's dead men trying to help dead men. Karabashakata. We've got to get back to the Bible and get back to Scripture and get back to the Gospel and say, Sovereign Lord, you alone know the answer for our nation. Well, that's three of you. I'm going to get the rest. I promise you I am. (laughs) Dry bones. So where were we? God. Man. Jesus. Jesus. Here comes Jesus. And Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything. The coming of Jesus as a virgin, the incarnation of Jesus, fully God and fully man, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father, all again, utterly unique. You know, there's no other religion, no other major or minor religion that can claim any of these truths. They don't come even close to claiming any of these truths. Jesus makes some statements from the cross. And he says this, Father, forgive them. Forgiveness, friends, for your sin and mine. Past, present, 
and future. Forgiveness of sin. I love how the Old Testament describes it when it says that God takes our sin and removes it as far as the east is from the west. Such a beautiful picture. I'm so glad he didn't say north and south because north and south is a finite distance. If you start at the South Pole and you travel north, you can only travel north till you get to the North Pole, then you're going south. That's a finite distance. But east and west, an infinite distance. So you can travel, you can start going east and you can circumnavigate the globe 150 million times, you're still going east. That's exactly how far I want my son away from me. Remember who I was? Not one redeemable quality about me. You think I want to be standing next to that guy every day? God just removed my sin this far away from me and every morning I've got to wake up. No, I want that kid as far away from me as possible. God chooses to remove our sin and he removes it as far as from the east is from the west and then he, reg- he remembers it no more. Got a divine forgettery. Takes us and removes it from the far as the you repent of your sin, you can repent of your sin, go back five minutes later and go, God, remember that thing? And he goes, nah. Because I chose to remove it as far as the east is from the west and I chose to remember it no more. This one-time sacrifice of the perfect son of God fulfilled every requirement for the penalty of sin. Every single requirement for the penalty of sin. And having done that, Jesus says, it is finished. It is finished. Hangs on the cross and he says, it is finished. Now those statements are covenantal and I, I, we can't get into that this morning. We don't have time to get into that. But I want to say this, when Jesus says it is finished, a more accurate English translation to that would be it's completely complete. There's nothing to add to it. Nothing to add. I'm so glad. That's the good news. I'm so glad Jesus didn't say, I took care of most of it, boys. Y'all are going to have to finish this thing up for me. And if he did do that, then we would have the right to be able to sing a song that sounds like I surrender 95%. But Jesus paid it all. And we get to sing a song that says, I surrender all. You doing okay? Jesus pays the ultimate price for your sin and mine. The Bible describes Jesus on the cross in Isaiah 54. It says he was marred beyond human likeness. He was punished beyond that of any man. Marred, scarred and twisted and beaten and tortured beyond human likeness. When they looked at the cross, they could not tell it was a human form. That's the punishment that fell on Jesus on our behalf. Kind of makes a little bit of a mockery of those pretty little paintings with a little trickle of blood coming down his forehead. Because that's not what the scripture describes Jesus as on the cross. Paid a penalty that you and I could not pay so that we could live a life with God that we do not deserve. And he's raised from the dead on the third day as evidence, as proof that the penalty has been paid. The wages of sin, in spite of inflation, are still death. The wages of sin are death. If the price for sin is not paid, Jesus is still dead. The price has been paid. The wrath of God has been satisfied. Yeah. 
That, that word satisfied is spent. So if you take a glass of water and you pour water in the, in the glass and you fill the glass up and then you pour the water out and there's nothing left in the glass, that water is spent. That's what it is. Not a drop left of the wrath of God. Remember Ephesians, we were by nature objects of the wrath of God. But the wrath of God has been spent on Jesus. Spent. There's not a drop left in God's heart. Not a drop of wrath left in God's heart. Because it's spent on Jesus. That's good news. Is the gospel getting gooder for you yet? Gooder and gooder. See, that's why Paul can be so strong on the resurrection. That's why. Paul can be so strong. Paul says this of the resurrection. He said, if Jesus is not raised... If the wrath of God is not satisfied, if the wrath of God is not spent on Jesus and Jesus is not raised, your preaching is useless. That's a strong word. Your preaching is useless and your faith is futile. That's at all hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not a happy Easter message. It all hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Because if Jesus is not raised, the wrath of God is not spent and we are still stuck in our transgressions and dead in our sins. Are you doing okay? Okay, so where are we in our little four-part plan here? God, man, Jesus, response. Beautiful. So I want to tell you for us this morning, friends, if you're here this morning, there's only two ways we can respond to this gospel. If you're not a believer in this room this morning, there's a response for you, an adequate response in your heart to this gospel. And that is simply to bow your knee in repentance before your Savior. Now use that word carefully. Because that's the word the Bible uses. It's kind of an old-fashioned word. We don't tell anybody to repent anymore. It's kind of like 50s word. Repent! But it's a Bible word. And see, the Bible does not say that heaven rejoices when somebody puts his hand up in church. The Bible doesn't say that, somebody repent, that, some, that heaven rejoices when somebody walks down the altar and comes in, walks down the aisle and kneels at the altar. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says heaven rejoices when a sinner repents. Repentance is the response to the gospel. So I want to tell you, friends, if you, if you have not repented before Christ, this is your moment. So it's between you and God. It's not about me asking for a response. When the prodigal comes and makes his speech, he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. All sin essentially is against God. Even if it was directed at another person, all sin is rebellion towards God. All sin is sin towards God. That's why our repentance primarily and firstly is towards God. This is your moment right now. You don't have to do anything else. You, don't have, you can't earn it. We said that. You can't add to it. You can't deserve it. You just have to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I repent of my sin this morning. I 
trust in the fullness of your gospel. And I trust that I can live out my life in gospel grace from this point. That's it. That's it. I can promise you this. I've never said the, this in his prayer. And I've never walked down an aisle to come and do that, do that so-called thing. Now, if you do it, yeah, that's fine. But I'm just telling you what the Bible says this morning. Repent of your sin and accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that right there secures you in eternity with him. You're doing right. If you're a believer in this room, there's a response to the gospel. Like I said, the gospel is not the ABCs, it's not the A to Z, it's the whole curriculum. It's the whole curriculum. I believe that sentence that Paul writes, I want to remind you of the gospel, should be spoken again and again and again in our days. So that we are reminded of the goodness and the scope and the greatness and the love and the kindness and the mercy of the gospel. The five solas that came out of the Reformation were a theological reset. And so the, the five solas are simply this, sola scriptura, scripture alone. And what that means is this, is that the scriptures are the final authority on any matter that they speak on. The Bible's not a math textbook. If you want to go design an airplane, you can't go read the Bible. But on what the Bible speaks on, it is the final authority on God, on life, on salvation, on marriage, on parenting, on all of these things. The Bible is the final authority. That, that seriously was two of you. <laughs> the, yeah, you doing right? The, the Bible is the final authority, friends. Now, I'm telling you, if this nation's going to have a hope, there's going to have to be some people to get back to the Bible. Yes. Sola Scriptura, and then Sola Gratia, grace alone. We are saved by grace alone. Nothing we can do or could do to deserve it. Grace alone. Sola Fida, through faith. Alone, saved by grace through faith, alone, and then solo Christus, Christ alone. There is no other plan for salvation, and there is no other hope for man than to understand that the Bible is the final authority on everything it speaks on, to understand that man is saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. There's no other plan for salvation. There's no other way for us to get out of we're stuck in our transgressions and dead in our sins. There's no other way. But I said that was five solas. And there's a fifth one. Soli Dio Gloria. For the glory of God alone. See, there's an adequate response to the gospel, friends. If you're an unbeliever, the adequate response of, I need to repent. 
I need to repent. Otherwise, I am dead in my sin. If you're a believer, there's an adequate response to the gospel. Solo dear Gloria, I am going to live my life in the light of this incredible gospel. I am going to live my life for the glory of God alone. See, glory is an interesting word. Glory is an interesting word. You can't describe glory because glory describes something. It's like beauty. You can't describe beauty because beauty is different to everybody. To those of us in Colorado, the mountains are beautiful. If you live by the ocean, the ocean's beautiful. If you live here, the lake's beautiful. Beauty, it describes something. I'm, I'm a Harley guy, ride motorcycles. My dad used to race motorcycles. I've been involved in motorcycling my whole life. To me, beauty is the sound of a Harley Davidson running at full throttle. That, yeah, there we go. Somebody, somebody back there. I, I, listen, I've been involved in motorcycling my whole life. If I'm sitting at a coffee shop or a restaurant, a motorcycle goes by, I still go like this. What was that? But you can't describe glory because glory describes something. You can't describe beauty because beauty describes something. But the glory of God, theologians describe it like this. Anytime we're talking about a single attribute of God, we are talking about the glory of God. Anytime we talk about all of the attributes of God, we're talking about the glory of God. See, we can't describe glory because glory describes God. So when we say, solo dear Gloria, I'm living out as best I can under gospel grace, either the single attribute of God that needs to be presented in this situation or across my life, I am living under gospel grace, all the attributes of God. Isn't that fascinating? Let us make man in our image, inbreathed, communion, created to carry the glory of God. Is that true of a man? Any man? Well, in essence it is. But when you look at somebody, you go, is that person the image of God? Because then God looks very different sometimes. But when we look at man, every man, mankind, so when God is created like that, it, it tears at the very fabric of racism. Because man is created in the image of God. Man is created in the image of God. So I love how Steve opened the meeting. He said, it's so cool to know that all over the world, churches are gathering today. The church is gathering under a tree in Africa. Church is gathering in the shadow of the, of the, of the Eiffel Tower. Where's Daniel? There you are. You like that, Daniel? Slipped you in there, brother. This church is gathering where God might be wearing just a loincloth. And when we put all of that together, what do we see? When we put mankind together, we see something of the glory of God. We see something of the image of God. And let me tell you, church in our day needs to start to represent that more and more and more. It's a big deal about racism in this nation right now. This is the answer. This is what tears at the very fabric of racism created in the image of God imputed value to people that look different to me you're glad you look different to me look different to me talk different to me you're glad you talk different to me people that eat different to me people, all of those things 
When all of that is together, we see something of the image of God. And so it tears away at that thing because God values, imputed value to every man. We see the end of that in the book of Revelation. Every nation, every tribe, and every tongue seated before the throne. You doing okay? The gospel lived out for the glory of God will change a nation. Not intellectually, but transformationally. Gospel is not meant to inform. The gospel is meant to transform. I want to tell you, friends, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of that. I'm, I'm not messing around when I say that. There was not one single redeemable quality about me. Not one. Not one. And in that place, God pours out his grace. In that place. And it's the living that thing out, the transformation of that thing. My father grew up with an alcoholic father that used to come home at three o'clock in the morning, rip him out of bed and beat him with anything he put his hands on. My dad wasn't like that with me, but my father had no idea how to be a father. No idea, because he had never been fathered. No idea. My dad used to beat me, beat my mom. You know what broke that cycle? Gospel grace. That's what breaks that cycle. That's why I was like I was, not blaming my dad. I'll tell my kids, you can blame me for your stuff until you're 14. And the Bible says then you're adult, so you take responsibility. Yeah, my dad this, my dad that. No, grow up. Take it before the Lord. God doesn't have any grandchildren. You're not saved because I'm saved. Do you need me to say that again? You're not saved because I'm saved. When Blaze preached that redemption, he was about 16 years old. And I, I, I tell my kids that all the time. You're not saved because I'm saved. You have to have your own relationship with God. When Blaze preached that redemption, 16 years old, he said, every time my dad said that, he used to terrify me. I, I never knew that. I was just trying to say, you need to have your own relationship with the Lord. <laughs> but it is true. No, we can't be saved on the basis of anybody else's salvation. I've got to have my own responsibility before God. I've got to take my stuff before God on my own after the age of 14. When I started to come before God, age 25, God poured out his love and his mercy and his grace on me. And then you've got a decision to make. Am I going to listen to the voice of my earthly father whose word that called me was a cuss word that I can't say in public? That's the name he had for me when he called me. It was a cuss word. Is that voice going to be the loudest voice in my ears? Or am I going to start to trust the voice of my heavenly father? Am I going to be what my dad tried to beat into me? Or am I going to be what my heavenly father is starting to call out of me? Are you doing okay? And so as we start to make that transition away from those things that we valued and into the things that God speaks over us and calls out of us, so we see gospel grace worked out in our lives. Now, did I know all of that? This is my point. Did I know all of that when I got saved? No. I knew that God had saved me. I knew he had poured himself out on me. But I'm telling you now, friends, I have been digging and trusting. So often my, my, my buddies will say, oh, what are you reading? I'm like, I'm reading a book on the gospel. It's like, do you read anything else? I do, but I read. Like, I want all of God's grace working in my life. I want all of it working all of the time. I don't want to leave anything undone. I don't want to leave anything on the table. I want all of God's grace. And my only adequate response to that is to live only for his glory. See, when we do that, it changes us, friends. 
When we do that, it changes us. It affects everything. It affects how I live. It affects where I live. It affects what I do. It affects what major I choose at college. It affects everything. It affects everything. Everything done, everything worked out, everything walked out with gospel grace, with only the glory of God in mind. Simon Sinek, business guy, wrote, wrote a book, I think, uh, something about the why. But his key thing is this, we lose our way when we lose our why. Lose our way when we lose our why. Sandy and I were talking about it, and Sandal says, well, that's not true for us as believers. She says, as believers, we lose our way when we lose our wonder. Lose our way when we lose our wonder. When we lose the wonder of the gospel. When we lose the beauty of the gospel. When we lose the wonder of living for his glory. We most certainly will lose our way. Let's stand together. German composer Johann Sebastian Bach was not a theologian he wasn't a pastor or even one of the reformers but he was a man who believed that God had called him to write the most beautiful music he possibly could Johann Sebastian Bach signed all his uh, music sheets SDG solo Dio Gloria. Whatever sheet you're working on in your life, your commitment to local church, your serving in a local church, your serving on a worship team, or serving in the kids' ministry, or serving coffee. The Reformation gave dignity to every calling because of this. Before the Reformation, it was only kings and royalty that appeared to have any value. But with the Reformation, every man was given dignity and value. Didn't matter whether you were a king or a shopkeeper. A king, a shopkeeper, or a housewife. All men have imputed value because God values man. So much that when man messed it up, he sent his son on a rescue mission to return us to the one who created us so that we can live our lives for his glory whatever sheet you're working on friends housewife husband father businessman doctor lawyer student I'm challenging you this morning friends let us live our lives whatever sheet we're working on we can with some measure of integrity sign the bottom of that sheet SDG solo deal Gloria.